Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Toby Dodge, and I'm the director of the Middle East Centre here at LSE. And I'm ferociously proud to say we've sold the venue out again. Uh, it's full, so there's a queue of uh, people outside not being able to get in. Um, and that's because of our speaker. But before I introduce him, and the topic, of course, before I introduce him, could you all turn your mobile phones off? on pain of me shouting at you if it rings in the middle of what I'm sure will be a wonderful lecture. Our speaker will talk for around, what do you think, half an hour, yeah. 40 minutes? Yeah. And then there's question and answer afterwards, the usual format. So it, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Professor Steve Heidemann, who is the Vice President for Applied Research on Conflict at the US Institute for Peace. Uh, I've known Steve for quite a while, first met him in Washington where he resides, but I first came across him with his magnum opus, Authoritarianism in Syria, Institutions and Social Conflict. He knows the country back to front. And what's also really interesting about him is the work that he's done on authoritarian upgrading way before the Arab Spring. He, uh, in a much more coherent way than I was predicting, the longevity of Arab authoritarianism and the aftermath of the Arab Spring... He proved to be right, and those optimists <laughs> proved to be wrong. So uh, for all young analysts out there, uh, pessimism uh, is, always, uh, is always rewarded. Um, so we welcome him here to, that, to do that, and with it, let's, let's give him an LSE welcome. Stephen Hyman. Uh, Toby, thank you very, very much for that generous in invitation, and thank all of you very, very much for taking some time out of your evening to, to come to this, this talk tonight. Uh, I can tell you that, that the appeal of this event for me had nothing to do with the speaker, frankly. Um, it, it had everything to do. Toby may not have mentioned to you, but, but this is the, the first of three presentations that I'm going to be giving at LSE this week, and even that... This is Chris uh, and Steve Heidemann. Well, so. But, but there's, there, there's an underlying set of incentives which you may not want to be made public, but which I'm about to reveal to this audience uh, um, with your promise that you will not um, circulate this gossip any further. Toby has a frequent speaker program. This is the thing. If you, if, you, if you speak more than three times, you get some kind of, of a prize. I don't, I don't quite know what it is yet, right, but, yeah. but, 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 uh, but I'm looking forward to it. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, to Toby rightly pointed to my interest in Syria as, as a subject that I've focused on for a very, very long time. I do want to make clear, just to, to set expectations at the right level, that that I will be talking this evening not so much about Syria per se, but about the Syrian conflict and the future of the state order in the Levant. I, it is the title of the talk. I felt a certain truth in advertising commitment to actually deliver content that was consistent with the title. Um, but that is going to be the, the subject of my comments. And, and as, I, as I thought a bit about that, that title, I realized it may have been a bit too... Uh, assertive. It may, it may have been a bit too judgmental in the sense that it suggests that the state order in the Levant has a future. And, and I, I wondered after the fact if perhaps I should have titled the talk, um, Is There a Future for the State Order uh, in the Levant? As you'll see as I move through my comments, I absolutely believe that there is a future to the state order in the Levant. I'll work my way around uh, to that conclusion, but let me begin by saying that I don't think anyone here is unaware of just how significant a subject uh, the events in the Levant have, have been over the past six to eight months. They have been very widely um, explored in the media. 
they have been a subject of quite extraordinary concern uh, among policymakers in Washington, among their counterparts here in, Euro- in Europe, certainly among uh, officials uh, in, in, the, uh, in the Middle East, in, in the Arab East itself. And I think this level of concern that the subject has received is, is entirely uh, warranted. Uh, the future of the Arab East is not these days a topic that offers a great deal of optimism, either about where the Levant is, is headed or about how it's going to get there. In fact, I think it's not an exaggeration to say that we haven't seen this level of turmoil, this level of upheaval uh, in the Arab East, perhaps even in the broader Arab world for decades, maybe even uh, even in the last century. And I think it's worth stressing at, at the outset, perhaps even at, at the risk of, of belaboring the obvious, that what we see unfolding in the Levant today is really nothing less than a moment of violent region-wide transformation, and that the pressures reshaping the Levant today are, are in many ways no less momentous in, in, in the kinds of consequences that they foretell for the region than were other equally pivotal moments in the history of the Arab East, the moments that we look back on as really defining the political trajectory of the, of the region. These include the post-World War I collapse of the Ottoman Empire and the emergence of modern uh, states in the post-Ottoman period. They include the rise of, of a post-colonial Arab state system uh, in the 1940s and 1950s. These were absolutely critical turning points. These were both moments in which really the basic political architecture of the region was transformed, was reshaped by global processes, including the collapse of empire, war, decolonization, the, the rise of modern states in, in the region. And, and, and as I look at the Levant today and at the scale of the conflicts the Levant is experiencing, I, I, I really see it as undergoing uh, a, a process of transformation that is no less monumental than, than those critical turning points of the, of, of the 20th century. To the point, I think, that it's not entirely unreasonable for an observer uh, of, of the Arab East, of the Levant, to conclude that the existing state order, this, this political architecture that was literally drawn up by Mark Sykes and George Picot, as, as you all know, 1916, almost 100 years ago, uh, and which is now under quite exceptional strain as a direct consequence uh, of the Syria conflict, that this state order is frankly not going to survive the pressures that it confronts today uh, in anything like its, its current form. Uh, by far the biggest challenge to the state order, I think we would probably all agree, is the rise of ISIS. Uh, ISIS has already erased very large sections of the border, between Iraq and Syria. It has accelerated the fragmentation of the Iraqi state. Uh, It has possibly accelerated the emergence of a a potential Kurdish, uh, independent Kurdish entity. And I think we we have to recognize that even though elements of ISIS can trace their origins to events in Iraq in 2006, 2008, and so forth, that the Syrian uh, civil war... Uh, has really served as an incubator for ISIS 
with all kinds of quite extraordinary effects. Uh, it has pushed the Syrian state to the point of collapse, and I wanted to, to use two slides to illustrate, illustrate the extent to which ISIS has been able to build and consolidate uh, its authority in Syria uh, over the last seven to eight months. Um, I don't know if you can read this all that well, um, but the areas in red uh, in this slide from last August are those in which ISIS was present, often engaged in conflict with other, other forces. So you will see the red crosshatch ISIS in conflict with other opposition units, for example. But that space, representing perhaps a quarter of Syrian territory, was more or less uh, the extent of ISIS's territorial control as of August 2014. This is the extent of ISIS's control in January. This is only about, well, it's a month old, this, this chart. It's based on very detailed mapping, based on on-the-ground interviews with, with local residents. It tells us something quite powerful, I think, when we recognize that as of January 2010, the coalition against ISIS had launched something like 2,000 sorties against ISIS positions, all of which have had the impact of accelerating and deepening the consolidation of ISIS authority over an expanded area. So, so it's clear that, that, that much of the challenge to the state order originates with the rise of this exceptionally militant non-state movement. But that's not the only uh, impact of the violent transformation underway in the Arab East. It, it, um, it has put enormous tension on an already fragile Syrian-Lebanese border. It's generated, as I'm sure you all know, massive refugee flows, massive population movements of IDPs within Syria. These are straining the capacity of every neighboring state and territory, uh, Iraqi Kurdistan, Lebanon, Turkey, Jordan, but also straining the capacity of areas that remain under regime control which now governs something like 35% of Syrian territory and 65% of Syria's population. One of the leading drivers of these challenges to the existing state order that is worth singling out is the process of the radicalization of ethno-sectarian identities, not only within Syria, but across the Levant and the broader Arab East, and hand-in-hand hand with this processes of ethno-sectarian polarization. In many respects, familiar to those who watched similar trends unfold in the Balkans in the 1990s. And with the scale of turmoil and the violence that is now on display in the Middle East, it's not surprising that the vocabulary that now dominates narratives about events that are unfolding in the Arab East include regular references to terms like chaos, disorder, disarray, collapse. The images that we are um, uh, subject to and the narratives in the media constantly stress the extent to which this is a, verge, a, a, re, a region that is on the verge of, of collapse and disintegration and where chaos is the defining 
character of that region. What I'd like to suggest, though, is that we need to be careful about viewing this moment of, of transformation, violent transformation in the Arab East, only through the lens of disorder and, 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 and chaos. I, I think what we're witnessing in the region, unquestionably an intense struggle, unquestionably a violent struggle, uh, I don't think it will leave the pre-2011 political map of the Levant completely intact. But it is a struggle that has a logic and a structure that I think can help us to make sense of what we see happening in the Levant. It's also a struggle, I think, which poses varied kinds of challenges and threats to different actors in the Levant. And what I'd like to do with the rest of my comments this evening is, is to try and lay out an argument about what I see as the underlying logic that is organizing the uh, current turmoil in, in, in the Levant and what some of the implications of that logic is for the region's future. And I want to try and do that in two main parts. The first is that I'm going to be arguing obviously something we can take up in the question and answer session if I'm less than fully persuasive. That's up to you to judge. Um, but I think it's helpful to frame the current conflicts in the Levant in terms of a struggle between what I would define as the norm of sectarianism and the norm of sovereignty. I think this is a struggle in which the norm of sectarianism seems to have the upper hand at the moment, at least for now, and I'll say more about this in a moment. But second, I'd also suggest that we need to pay attention to the countervailing forces that are at work within the Levant. These are forces that are pushing back against and challenging the norm of sectarianism. And so with these two dimensions of this current struggle in mind, I'd like to begin with this notion that we're entering an era in which regional dynamics, regional conflicts are increasingly defined by the norm of sectarianism. Uh, what does that mean? When I refer to the norm of sectarianism, I have in mind a concept that's very commonly used in the international relations literature, where norms <laughs> simply mean a shared understanding of what constitutes legitimate behavior. In effect, uh, norms can be seen as frameworks of shared expectations that regulate and discipline behavior whether of individuals or of regimes or indeed of, of states. And they do this through a variety of means. Norms do this by raising the costs of some behaviors for political actors. They lower the costs of other actors by political behaviors. Norms create expectations that societies use to hold regimes uh, accountable um, that help to define whether societies view <coughs> regimes as legitimate. They provide organizing principles that I think define the terms of regional conflict and competition and that help to give structure to regional alliance behavior. So who lines up with whom is often affected by the presence of this norm of sectarianism. And we need to be aware that norms also have a life cycle. They're not, they're not permanent. There are periods in which a single norm as a disciplining framework may be decisive, and there are times when the authority of a norm can erode as a result of changes in a broader political context. And I'd, I'd argue that current challenges to the state order in the Levant, the kind of conflicts that we see unfolding today, can be understood 
in many ways as a result of the growing authority that attaches to this norm of sectarianism. Which means what? Well, again, I think it means that we find a growing sense within communities in the region that what constitutes legitimate behavior is defined in terms of sectarian identities and of sectarian communal interests. I think it means that sectarianism has become a basis, uh, sectarianism as a norm has become a basis uh, that disciplines and regulates the behavior of of, uh, regional actors. I think it's redefined the terms of regional conflict and competition And I think it's done so in ways that pose really a very direct challenge to an Arab state order in the Levant that became consolidated around the norm of sovereignty with all that that implies about the legitimacy and the integrity of a state order based, uh, of a state-based political order, of a political order based on the notion that sovereign states are the fundamental Uh, and legitimate political units. This isn't the first time, as I'm sure those of you who know the region will recall, that the legitimacy of the Arab state order has been challenged by competing norms. From the 1950s up through the 1970s, it was the norm of Arabism that challenged the state order in the region, and and in particular uh, in the Levant. If you recall the instability of the, of the Arab state order, Syria, Iraq, Egypt, to some extent Libya, during the years of the 50s to the 70s. Arabism at that time formed the principal axis around which inter-Arab relations revolved. They defined the terms of regional conflict and competition. But, as I mentioned, over time, Arabism lost its uh, authority. Um, as a framework for disciplining the behavior of Arab leaders. It was replaced by the norm of state sovereignty as the prevailing framework that shaped regional relations. And it's generally agreed that the tipping point in this transition was Egypt's decision to enter into a separate peace with Israel in 1979, putting Egyptian state interests ahead of some conception of the collective interests of the Arab nation, a a conception that had become increasingly problematic in the period from the 1950s to the 1970s. And so I tend to see the conflicts that are challenging the state order in the Levant today as expressions of a new tipping point. This is a tipping point in which the norm of sovereignty is again being challenged, but this time by a competing norm that's anchored in expressions of sectarian identity as a disciplining and organizing framework. Where does Syria fit in all this? Well, I think we have to recognize that the Syrian uprising has been critical in opening up space for these challenges to take their current violent form. I think the Syrian conflict has been central in empowering and radicalizing the norm of sectarianism to the extent that we see today in movements like ISIS. But at the same time, I think we also have to acknowledge that this shift in norms, this tipping point, this emergence of a norm of sectarianism that has achieved sufficient authority to challenge the norm of sovereignty has much deeper 
uh, origins. I would argue that the genesis moment in the empowerment of this norm was in fact the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. But I tend to trace its emergence to five broader political trends in regional uh, in regional affairs, all of which go back to the early 2000s. Now, I mentioned them here. I, I wrote a paper in 2013 in which I play these out in a bit more detail. I, I'm not going to read them um, to you. But I think what we see in that first factor, this growing strategic linkage between Iran, Hezbollah, and Syria, is that what had previously been defined in terms of a resistance axis with a central focus on confrontation with Israel took on an increasingly sectarian profile, an increasingly sectarian character. We see that as Turkey became, as the AKP became the dominant political party in Turkey, as it turned its back on Europe in response to challenges to its uh, interest in membership in the European Union from the EU. It engaged increasingly in the Arab world, and it did so as a sectarian actor. And this trend accelerated and deepened after the start of the Syrian uprising, when, for example, in September 2011, as Syrian government forces began an offensive against Hama, President Erdogan, at that time Prime Minister, said, Turkey, as a Sunni power, will not sit back and permit another massacre of the Sunni community of Hamas. So the framework of engagement in the Arab world for the AKP also became increasingly sectarian. We have this widely known uh, shift in, 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 in influence and, and diplomatic weight toward regimes that themselves had deeply sectarian identities in the Arab Gulf, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and so on. Iraq after the invasion, in part because of the political dispensation imposed on Iraq by U.S. forces during the occupation, underwent a process of soft partition along ethno-sectarian lines. And what we also see in this, to, in this period of, of the 2000s are some very dramatic changes in what it means to enact sectarian identities, in what it means to be a member of a particular sectarian community. And I draw very heavily on the work, I don't know if it was an LSE, Fanar Haddad, but... Sorry? Exeter. Uh, who has done some very interesting work, detailed work, tracing the um, shift in expressions of sectarian identity in Iraq in the period after 2003 that contributed both to this trend of sectarian, um, uh, increasing uh, sectarian polarization, but also um, much more rigid <coughs> and much more religiously defined conceptions of sectarian identity than had been prominent previously. And, and in the aggregate, I think the effect of these factors has been to amplify and empower the norm of sectarian, uh, sectarianism as a framework that disciplines the behavior of regional actors. I think it's weakened and eroded 
the norm of sovereignty across the Levant in no small part because of the Syrian conflict. And it's done so in ways such that when the Arab uprisings occurred in 2011, which were not at all sectarian in their initial phases, these mass movements that emerged to challenge the legitimacy of regimes could easily be captured by political entrepreneurs acting in the name of sectarian identities and sectarian interests with the results that we tend to see in uh, the Levant today and with implications for domestic politics, for regional alliance behavior, and for the patterns that we see in many of the regional conflicts unfolding. Uh, in the Middle East, in the Arab East today. For instance, states and and regimes that had previously presented themselves as secular, as multi-confessional, even as as cosmopolitan, countries like Lebanon, Syria, Yemen, Bahrain, even Iraq to an extent, are today being challenged by a variety of these sectarian, radical, non-state movements that are using violent means in an effort to push the region toward a political order organized along sectarian lines. Now, clearly, not all of these movements are new. They don't all share a vision of what a sectarian political order would look like. Some of them, certainly, and I'm thinking here principally of Hezbollah, have been in place for a very long time, and they have developed strategies for accommodating the norm of sovereignty within their political activities, even though I think some of these strategies are being tested by current conflicts. And, and, and as I mentioned at the outset, there's a sense among some analysts of the region that the norm of sectarianism has already so deeply transformed regional politics that it will be impossible to sustain even the remnants of the Sykes-Picot political order established in 1916. And one of the ways in which we can see this that I think is especially interesting is by looking at some of the imagined state orders that have been developed to speculate about how political boundaries in the Arab world might be redrawn along sectarian lines. My colleague Robin Wright, a a reporter um, who is now a fellow at the U.S. Institute of Peace, published this imagined uh, state order in the Arab world based on what it would look like if political boundaries were redrawn along sectarian lines. She imagines the collapse of the region into an enormous number of units. And these units more or less coalesce with the um, critical sectarian fault lines in the region. But this is one of these imagined political orders that grows out of this conception that the norm of sectarianism is going to be definitive in redefining political orders uh, in, in the Arab East and perhaps in the broader Middle East. This is another one of these imagined political orders developed by a colleague, Joshua Landis, who runs a very well-known blog on Syria called Syria Comment. And he had this notion, again, of redrawn political boundaries in which basic political units would reflect the core sectarian fault lines across the Arab East. So we do have 
some serious thought being given to what alternative state orders would look like if the norm of sectarianism were to prevail in shaping the political order of the region. But here I'd also encourage caution about rushing to the conclusion that the current state order in the Levant is inevitably doomed. As I mentioned earlier, I think we do have to be attentive to countervailing pressures at work in the region. The norm of sovereignty and, and national as opposed to sectarian identities remain very much alive, often held by the same individuals without a great sense that these are intention. The norm of, of, of sovereignty is under extraordinary pressure, of course, um, and, and yet these national identities have not yet collapsed. In, in fact, in many political settings in the Arab world, they remain quite vibrant. And there are a number of factors pushing back against the norm of sectarianism, and I want to mention three of those in, in particular. First, the escalation of sectarian violence, I think, has had quite mixed effects on states and state capacity in the Levant and in the Arab East. In the case of Jordan, for example, there is evidence that regional conflict has actually strengthened the Syrian state, certainly with respect to its control of its borders with Syria and Iraq. Among states that are governed by sectarian regimes, including Saudi Arabia. We see similar processes of strengthening and reinforcing institutions of the state as regimes try to develop the means to counter the rise of oppositional sectarian challenges from groups like ISIS, extremist groups like ISIS. And we see this again in the expansion and the empowerment of security apparatuses, the military, and so if we imagine that the norm of sectarianism is undermining existing states in every context, I think we have some evidence that that's simply not the case. Second, even in contexts in which sectarian tensions are deepening, Lebanon is a good case of that. We often hear that the spillover from Syria will reignite sectarian conflict in Lebanon. It's also clear that commitments to some notion of Lebanese identity and, and, and the norm of Lebanese sovereignty remains an absolutely central element of Lebanese political discourse across every sector of the political spectrum, including among Hezbollah, even as its participation in the Syrian conflict has eroded its identity as a Lebanese national actor. Speeches, public, uh, public um, uh, discourse continues to emphasize the Lebanese national identity of, of Hezbollah. And we see the same continued references to national identities and the integrity of the national state among Syrians as well, <coughs> including uh, many Syrians in the opposition, not ISIS certainly, but even among Jabhat al-Nusra you'll hear these kinds of sentiments e expressed. Now, that isn't always... Uh, that the sort of the, the, the continued vibrancy of national identities and defense of the norm of sovereignty isn't equally present across the region. I think if we look at Yemen and Iraq, I think the norm of sovereignty has probably been more profoundly undermined than in some of the other cases I've been discussing, and I have a suspicion that the future integrity of those states is going to be much harder to sustain. But as a third countervailing factor, we also have to be aware that there continues to be quite extraordinarily 
uh, significant regional and international opposition to conceptions of a state order in the Levant based on anything other than sovereignty. The international community simply has very little patience for that notion. This is expressed, I think, quite visibly in the speed with which an international coalition against ISIS took shape, even though this has raised some very difficult questions, especially in the U.S., about whether the campaign against ISIS means that the U.S. is again uh, or has uh, reached out and begun to collaborate in some fashion with the Assad regime. The issue was raised in the recent BBC interview with Assad. It was raised in a recent um, written interview that appeared in foreignpolicy.com. Uh, so this is a, a, a one of the challenges associated with, with the rise of this campaign against ISIS. But even as we acknowledge the, the seriousness and the intensity of the challenge that the norm of sectarianism poses to a state order in the Levant uh, that became consolidated around the norm of sovereignty over the course of the last three or four decades, uh, and understanding that whatever new political order emerges from this period of, of transformation is almost certain to include some changes in the political map of, of the region, uh, including, I think, the most likely potential change uh, as the emergence of an independent Kurdish entity, I think we also have to recognize how deeply consolidated the norm of sovereignty has become in the Arab East, I think we have to recognize what it means that the norm of sovereignty remains the only legitimate framework for a political order within the international community. And so as we're watching these struggles continue to unfold, I think we have to be looking for not necessarily the defeat of the norm of sovereignty and the emergence of a political order based on the norm of sectarianism, but instead, what we have to be looking for are new forms of accommodation between the norm of sovereignty and the norm of sectarianism as organizing principles for regional politics. I think we have to recognize that these accommodations are unlikely to produce the scale of change in the political order that ISIS seeks. But on the other hand, just as Arabism profoundly transformed the, 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 the vocabulary, the discourses, and the content of Arab politics, even after it lost its authority as a disciplining framework, the norm of sectarianism will have similar lasting durable effects on the kinds of political accommodations that shape the political order of the Levant over the coming perhaps 10, perhaps 20 years, which tells us that as a disciplining norm, we are likely to be in for an extended period in which regional politics contain a far more developed, far more powerful sectarian dimension than they might have in, the, say, the 20 years prior to the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. And I will stop there. Thank you very much. In, in, no large, in no small part because of uh, Steve's uh, admirable discipline coming in almost exactly on half an hour, we now have almost an hour for discussion. So I'll take questions. Yes, you, sir, you're the first to catch one. If you wait for the microphone. 
Dr. Heidemann, you use the word accommodation, which to my mind means some some sort of discussion, conversation with the various participants in what's going on at the moment. So do you see any evidence or is there any prospect of a conversation with ISIS? If you hold that thought, we'll collect a couple more. Who else wants to ask a question? Yes, you sir. The mic will come around to you. Thanks. Um, I wonder if you might comment on, um, obviously the, the Syrian regime's uh, sort of identity and message is all about anti-sectarianism and defending a secular state from extremists. Um, but there is, it just seems to me there's a fair amount of evidence that it has stoked sectarianism both deliberately, implicitly and explicitly, um, perhaps for short-term goals rather than ideological ones. But could you comment on that? Mm-hmm. And finally, this round, yes, please. Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to ask, uh, clarify the numbers you mentioned. You said ISIS country controls 65% of the uh, Syrian land and population? No, no. 25% of the area and 65%? No, no, the regime, the regime controls yeah. oh, the 35% regime controls. of the territory and about 65% of the population. Oh, I see. The estimates of, of, of population under ISIS control are between 2 and 4 million. I see. And what percentage is that compared to Jabal Um I, I think it is probably comparable because the territory that ISIS controls is far more sparsely inhabited. And Jabhat al-Nusra is now heavily present in Idlib province around Aleppo and in other areas where population density is higher. Great. Well, you've answered the last question. So you have, okay. you have two questions. One, okay. talk to ISIS in part right. of its accommodation. And two, to what extent is the Syrian regime responsible for sector, right. stoking sectarianism? I, I tend to view the prospects for engagement with ISIS around some sort of accommodation with the existing political order to be very, very low, essentially non-existent. I, I think ISIS has a political project, uh, the success of which is contingent on the elimination of a sovereignty-based political order, initially in the Arab East and then more broadly into the Gulf and beyond. And and they've made very clear that their principal targets uh, in terms of the um, political redesign of the region are uh, Muslim governments that they view as um, operating outside what they consider to be the legitimate limits of an Islamic state. So I, 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 I think that, that we're much more likely to find strategies of, of accommodation emerge um, in negotiations, for example, with groups that um, continue to express fairly radical conceptions of Islamic governance like Jabhat al-Nusra, but which also identify themselves as Syrians and as having a stake in preserving the territorial integrity of Syria, in, in recognizing the, the, the demographic diversity of Syria. And, and, of course, what those accommodations look like depend ultimately, to some extent, on the balance of power on the ground. And um, I think one of the reasons Hezbollah has been able to develop strategies of accommodation that provide frameworks for its engagement within the Lebanese political system is precisely because it feels that those um, relationships do not challenge its core identity. 
So this is going to be a very complex, very long process. I, I don't see ISIS as uh, a participant in these kinds of, of um, developments. And, and whether they unfold through, through a process of dialogue or are somehow imposed on a battlefield or imposed through some sort of multinational political process, I mean, it's very hard to say how they would emerge. Um, but, but nonetheless, I would, I would rule out ISIS. I, I don't think there's any question that the Assad regime has played a significant role in stoking sectarian uh, aspects of the conflict, extremism, polarization, uh, across a wide range of different um, um, strategies and, and tactics, everything from the widely known practice of releasing jihadists from prisons to uh, the almost immediate designation of anyone who participated in protests as motivated by sectarian impulses um, to the, the uh, integration of the almost entirely Alawi uh, loyalist militias, now the National Defense Forces, previously Shabiha, into the security apparatus of the regime. Um, you know, this is, this is one of, uh, of many ways in which the Assad regime has been fairly savvy in holding on to this rhetoric uh, of its role as a defender of a cosmopolitan, sectarian, multi-confessional Syria, while acting in ways that completely undermine um, those claims. Right. Yes, you... Shout, we haven't got a mic. If we look at Yemen at the moment, that's, uh, I mean, a, a conflict or what we see play out there, everyone keeps saying it's not a sectarian conflict. What is your view on that? Or is it developing into a sectarian conflict if you look at the influence of other external actors? Yes. Sorry. Yeah, hold on. I, I have to take notes. Yeah, it's, you know, so it's okay. okay, conflict, yeah. Hi, um, I have two questions, if you don't mind. On the first to uh, the second slide and the third slide, where you show, can you go back, if you don't mind? That one? Uh, yeah, the one before. So going from that slide to the next one, I would assume that ISIS would have had a recruited a lot more people to control those territories, just an assumption. Um, so I have two questions. One is, you haven't mentioned Gaza at all in any of your, uh, in any parts of the lecture. So what role does the uprising in Gaza play in what's happened in Syria? And the second one is, I've, I have two friends who are currently in Syria, Wait, this what? is three questions. Sorry, no, no, that's two, it's two questions, I promise. Okay. So the second question is, okay. Um, okay. I have two friends currently in Syria, one from LSE, the other one in, from Oxford um, graduates, and they went into Syria initially to fight against what was happening there um, from Assad initially, and now they can't come back to the UK because they'd be seen as God knows what. Um, what do you recommend, what, do you, what is your view on um, UK policy at the moment where if you come back to United Kingdom you may be seen as a terrorist? 
Right, that's yeah. interesting. That's three yeah. questions. So the, 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 fir- the first is, can we understand the Yemeni right. conflict as sexism? No, I'll, I, although I, I don't mind answering the last eventually because I'm utterly ignorant on the subject, which gives me a perfect foundation for responding. So I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll try. Um, in, ter- in, in terms of, of, of ISIS rec- recruitment, I think we have seen significant waves of, of recruitment to ISIS. And... The, the period between its successful uh, offensive against Mosul uh, and its kind of sweep across um, northern Iraq, uh, the aftermath of that period was accompanied by a quite extraordinary increase in the numbers of foreign fighters flowing uh, into the territory controlled by the Islamic State. At one point, the numbers were as high as 5,000 a month, um, that included individuals originating from Morocco, Tunisia, um, Jordan, um, the U.S., a few, Europe, quite a few more, uh, certainly the Central Asia, Chechnya. It, there, was, there was a quite extraordinary inflow during that period. My understanding is that those numbers have fallen off significantly and, and that um, the difficulties that ISIS has encountered militarily in the last several months have been a significant disincentive for individuals who might have been considering traveling uh, either to Syria or Iraq to to join ISIS. We've seen some evidence of this. Uh, Just yesterday it was reported that ISIS had withdrawn a number of its units around Aleppo, There's a very, very clear sense among government officials that ISIS now feels sufficiently constrained that it is beginning to concentrate its forces in anticipation of an offensive against Mosul. Um, And so it is pulling resources away from other areas uh, in in expectation that Mosul will soon become a principal battlefield. But, But beyond that, the whatever whatever it is possible for governments to discern about how many people are traveling uh, into Syria and Iraq, the numbers do seem to be quite a bit lower at the moment, and it does seem to be having an effect on their ability to sustain control um, as widely and as deeply as they did previously. About um, Gaza. I I would take the view that this is a, a conflict structured along very very different lines. This this is a, a kind of a, a conflict of competing nationalisms uh, between two vastly unequal uh, actors who make competing claims uh, around um, around particular territory. Uh, I, of course, Hamas has a significant sectarian component in in terms of its identity. But I would tend to view it as somewhat external to the to the broader dynamics that I've that I've been discussing. If someone else thinks that they're more tightly integrated, certainly be be open to hearing that argument. Um, about the return of fighters, I, every single government in the West is wrestling with this right now, and we know that there are widely varying policy responses. We know that in some Scandinavian cases. Fighters have been welcomed, not welcomed, but have been permitted to return, have been supported in their reintegration into society. There's a sense that their experiences um, in Iraq and Syria were so deeply disillusioning 
that uh, there is no threat that they will remain radicalized over an extended period. The UK, France, I suspect the US will also take a very different view in which the approach will be punitive, it will be targeted at punishing those who return from Syria uh, or Iraq, uh, and that the, the view is that these are individuals who've participated in, um, in, in potentially participated in crimes against humanity, in, in, in mass murder, uh, in some cases, and that they deserve, uh, they, they deserve to be handled within a criminal justice system. So I, I, I certainly, um, I, I, I don't, I, I have not myself taken a view on which of these strategies is more likely to succeed. We have witnessed a number of de-radicalization programs in Saudi Arabia, in Yemen, in other countries, uh, that sought the reintegration of former jihadists into society with very, very mixed results. Does that mean anything about what would happen in Scandinavia? Very hard to say. Uh, I, I will say that, that I think my, my inclination is to avoid putting these individuals into circumstances in which their radicalization is likely to become either further consolidated or hardened and we saw with the Charlie Hebdo attack, one of the attackers had come out of a French prison system. He had gone in, he had gone in, I think, with far less radical views than when he emerged. Prisons do not tend to cultivate tolerance and, and um, sort of... Uh, and so I, you know, I, 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 I'm not giving you a, a very conclusive response to that question, but I, I, I do think that the inclination to, to criminalize these individuals when they return... Um, has shown itself to be counterproductive in, in some cases. And now to Yemen. <coughs> Yemen. Is this a sectarian conflict? You know, Yemen's quite extraordinarily interesting. I think it is a conflict that is, as, as in other cases, in transition. There, there are, you know, I, I used to, I, I've traveled to Yemen a number of times. I, I, I had the quite extraordinary opportunity to participate in some talks among groups uh, representing the GPC, the General People's Congress, and the um, joint uh, meeting group in 2010 around the establishment of a process to to move Yemen toward elections. Um, and I was persuaded at the time that both the southern secessionist movement, the Hirak, and the northern Houthi movement were much more concerned about renegotiating the terms of inclusion in the Yemeni state than they were about than about separation or about fundamentally challenging uh, the Syrian, uh, the, the Yemeni state. I, I no longer believe that that is the case. I think the time has passed uh, in which they view um, the, the, the previous uh, political system as providing them with the kinds of opportunities that would satisfy their aspirations. I think the Herak has become fundamentally more radicalized. Uh, and now views uh, separation as a core demand. And with the Houthis in control of, of the central government, in effect, um, it, it also certainly seems uh, that while they, they may continue to, to view their future as intimately tied to a political order in which they are one of a number of, of, of governing groups, um, that they are... That they are 
no longer going to be satisfied with the sorts of compromises that they might have felt addressed their core concerns in 2010 or previously, which were really about marginalization, uh, discrimination in, in access to economic resources, uh, things like that. Uh, so so I, I think the, the Yemeni struggle is becoming sectarianized. And I think the implications of that for reaching any kind of settlement of that conflict are, are fairly um, dire. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Hello. Um, thinking of the sectarian remapping of the, of the Middle East and moving from Syria to Iraq, I'd like to hear your, your opinion on the role of Iran in the south of Iraq and uh, more generally the role of the Shias in this radicalization <coughs> of the sectarian identities in the Middle East. Because I think that much attention has been given to the north of Iraq, what is happening with the ICE, with the Islamic State. But the south of Iran, Iraq, where Iran is more and more powerful, uh, has been relatively forgotten. And Iran has played a significant role in the radicalization of sectarian identities in Iraq. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a mic behind you if you just don't uh, thank you for a clear uh, discussion uh, of, of the disorder and order. Uh, my question relates to these two norms, the sovereignty and the sectarian. Uh, to what extent are they completely separate? Because we have models in the region where they uh, actually overlap. Uh, you have regimes that are sectarian and they claim sovereignty and propagate Arab nationalism or entities that want to be sectarian. For example, Israel wants to be recognized as a Jewish state. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, my point relates to the sort of the complete separation between the two hasn't been historically accurate right. because they were overlapping areas. Uh -huh. And the second thing is that you know, these maps, first they are imagined outside the region. Uh -huh. And I would like to see how, if there is such a map, uh, how do the people themselves there imagine the new Levant or the new Arab world? And uh, thirdly, oil. Oil, I mean, these sectarian entities, you know, how viable are they? Are they going to implode from within one day simply because if the price of oil keeps deteriorating? Which or the existing entities or the, these well, potentially? Um, but they, they correspond to some kind of reality. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for example, southern Iraq, uh, the uh, ISIS oil, um, <coughs> the, shore, the, the eastern Mediterranean shore. And then you go down to the Arabian Peninsula and you see oil in certain places, for example, eastern Saudi Arabia, which corresponds to another entity that we didn't talk about. So oil is extremely important for these kind of sectarian uh, tendencies to erupt the way they erupted. And without oil, what would happen to them? <laughs> Very interesting. Right, yeah. that's four questions because the good professor asked three, so let's, uh, let's leave it at All that. Right. You know, I, I would not claim vast expertise on uh, trends within the Shia community in Iraq. Uh, certainly, there remain very deep tensions between competing Marja'iya in, in, in uh, Najaf, Karbala, and in Iran. 
with Sistani being the most significant example of that. I think perhaps we haven't seen quite as much uh, in the media about the activities of, of Shia in the South because it's an area in which Shia are dominant. There has been relatively little violence in this most recent phase of conflict. Uh, and so it has faded into the background a, a bit, certainly with respect to the Shia militias. I think if we wanted to focus on that as a very, very troubling element of this broader trend, they are having a significant impact in deepening and amplifying um, you know, sectarian, sectarian, the norm of sectarianism, sectarian identities as an organizing uh, force within some of these conflicts. There's enormous concern about the, their unregulated behavior, the atrocities that they have been accused of perpetrating, enormous concern about what might happen if they become active in Sunni majority areas in Iraq. Uh, and these are militias that have very, very close ties in many cases to Iran and that are in many cases seen as, as representing expressions of Iran's influence over uh, over Iraqi politics. And, and so, um, qu quite apart from whatever might be happening in the South, I, I think the, the question of the increasing consolidation of um, non-state sectarian <coughs> armed groups in Iraq, initially now focusing on Shia militias, but if legislation authorizing the formation of Sunni National Guard units passes, this will also, I think, emerge within the Sunni community. We just heard news reports about Yazidis um, engaged in atrocities against Sunni communities in neighboring areas as an act of revenge following the attacks against them by ISIS last summer. So the broader, the broader trend is one in which the relative weakness of the Iraqi state, the extraordinary weakness of the Iraqi armed forces has created a context in which both Sunni and Shia and minority communities are increasingly looking to non-state militias to provide for their own defense and I don't see anything good that can come out of that trend. So I, I don't know if that answered your question in particular um, but, but I do think that we have to recognize that there remain deep divisions between respected, credible Shia Iraqi figures and their counterparts in Iran, um, and that the, these do create some constraints on the capacity of Iran to establish its own authority as the, the source of, of, of doctrine, of, of, of behavior. Um, among Iraqi uh, Shia and among Bahraini Shia who also tend to look more toward Iraq than toward uh, Iran for its sources of religious authority. Um, in terms of norms, right, not, absolutely right. The, the, these are not hermetically sealed containers. These are containers that are porous. And we do have regimes that have presented themselves and legitimated themselves very much in sectarian terms. And this is one of the things I was implying when I noted that previous challenges to the norm of sovereignty Arabism have had a lasting impact on 
the behavior of Arab uh, rulers, Arab incumbents, in, in, in the sense that, you know, even though the Saudi regime has a very clear sectarian self-identity, it has been compelled to be responsive to the norm of Arabism in the way it talks and presents itself. And it has been able to, to establish one of these models of accommodation between the norm of sovereignty and the norm of sectarianism that have permitted it to play the role of a status quo figure, a uh, status quo actor in the region, which sees the rise of an extremist oppositional norm of sectarianism as an extraordinary threat. And there have been some quite remarkable statements that have resulted from this. For example, the Crown Prince of Bahrain at the last Manama Dialogue in December 2014, a, a, a ruler uh, representing a family which has been critical in the sectarian polarization of Bahrain, talking about the challenge of sectarianism. And so, yes, I mean, these containers are porous, but it's very clear that there is, you might, you might almost say, a, a kind of a sovereignty-based, status quo-oriented set of regimes which use their sectarian identity to legitimate themselves, but are principally doing so in pursuit of a sovereignty-based conception of, of, the, of, of, of their state. <coughs> and there are others who, which is why ISIS, I think, views the Saudis as one of their principal targets, for whom this is hypocrisy. This is an expression of the dishonesty of these regimes. This is an expression of the extent to which they have abandoned or betrayed, you know, Ha'am al-Haramain, not... Uh, not uh, the, the not the defender of the of the holy source of the holy sites, but the the, the betrayer of the holy sites as as a, as a as a descriptor of of the Saudi ruling family, and 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 so we we see how these kinds of accommodations generate their own sorts of tensions and contradictions that that these regimes sometimes struggle to deal with. But I think. You know, the notion that, that these governments are going to fall into one category other or other is certainly not something that I would, would endorse. Um, imagined, imagined political orders from within the region. That, that, that's a fabulous question. I'm not aware of any. I, I, I'd, I'd be very interested in learning if we had seen any of these orders emerge uh, from uh, from counterparts uh, to those I, I I showed you in in the slides from within the region. It is, and I and it isn't dead by any means. It it hasn't happened, but it, it certainly isn't dead. But but I haven't uh, you know I haven't seen. And again, in some ways, this is an expression of the extent to which these countervailing forces continue to be powerful. I can't imagine any serious element of the Syrian opposition, for example, presenting to the opposition a map that envisioned the partition of Syria along sectarian lines. I think that would be seen as absolutely illegitimate. Even in Libya, I cannot imagine any of the leading political actors putting forward as a political proposal a map that envisioned the tribal or geographic division of Libya as an entity. And even within Yemen, 
where I think, or, or, or even in Iraq, where I think these processes have advanced much further of, of, of partition. Um, there continues to be very deep resistance to acknowledging that as a legitimate starting point for any kind of political process. So, I mean, it is, it is, it is quite interesting. Oil and, and, and the effects of, of oil. You know, these imagined political orders, these, you know, these redrawn political orders face enormous challenges, and the economic challenges are, are there, but I'm not even sure they're the most significant. I mean, can you imagine what would happen if leaders of units that took these forms sought international recognition in the United Nations, seats in the UN, wanted to establish bilateral, multilateral trade agreements with neighbors, wanted to create postage stamps and passports, um, wanted to... Uh, I'm sorry? Sorry? Yes, absolutely, although with one, with one exception, which is that all of those processes were facilitated by the mandatory powers and within an international system in which mandatory authority over those political units was blessed by the League of Nations and then the United Nations. And so there was a kind of international acceptance of the sovereignty of those or semi-sovereignty of those entities during that period none of these units would benefit from that kind of recognition. So, so of course, I, I, I think, you know, to the extent that, that some of these actors like ISIS now rely on informality, criminality, um, sale of illegally excavated archaeological goods, sale of, of, of smuggling of oil, all of this um, as a basis of revenue, that's, that's, that's hardly the foundations on which you can... <laughs> you can organize a, a kind of stable political, a set of political institutions or governance structures. Right. Uh, just to pick up on your point on sheer political opinion in Iraq, I think you've seen a major shift after the summer of 2014 where former mainstream websites associated with the Dawah Party have started to openly speculate about uh, the division uh, about the division of Iraq from Baghdad down, which which is interesting. I'm going to ask you a question actually and push you harder on causality. I think and uh, the materialist in me wants wants a cause. I mean, so your norm normative almost constructivist framework would be looking at norm entrepreneurs, and we can find them a plenty. Uh, I think about Michael Barnett's work mm -hmm. on the rise and fall of Arabism in a more materialist aspect. Uh, you could explain that through the consolidation of the institutional capacity of, of the states. And so then if you're looking for a kind of the space within which this rise of kind of normative sectarianism comes, it's with the collapse of Yemen, Iraq, yeah. Syria. So that's, that's where I'd go. I just wonder if you're going that. That's my question. But uh, I'll, yes, you sir, the back with the glasses. Yes, yes you. Uh, I just want to ask about, like, I mean, obviously the regime the excessive use of violence in Syria has uh, helped the extremists in Syria. But what is the, to what extent the opposition helped? Because like George Sabra, for instance. Uh, Which, so, sorry? George Sabra. He's one of the like, founder of the Syrian oppositions. He also encouraged the Syrians to go for jihad in Syria. And he's Christian himself. So to what extent actually the opposition helped the, to radicalize the Syrians? And my, my other question is about 
Rojava, or the north east of Syria. I'm sorry, sir. I couldn't hear. Rojava, north east of Syria. Like, what was? What is the question? Like, what is going to happen to the Kurds in northeast of Syria? The, the Republic of Rojava. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> okay. Hold that thought. Okay. Yeah, you sir. Um, you, you touched on this uh, a couple of times. Thank you. Um, but to push you just a little bit, what is the role of the local constituency in going forward in terms of what ISIS or what may come next, particularly in comparison or the comparison you've drawn with Hezbollah? With uh, the PKK or the, the PYD or or the opposition itself, and and more simply, these are all these other organizations have local constituencies, and if ISIS is largely or significantly drawn from non-Syrians, then is what what is in terms of the conditions of who the groups are going forward that have a stake? What what is the role of local constituency? Like Hezbollah is very clear they are a, as you say, a Lebanese political organization and a plurality of Christians vote lists and elections that supports uh, Hezbollah candidates. And, and it matters for, I mean, the, the nationalist identity for the Kurds. So that this, this role of local constituency and who are the locals for ISIS? I, I see a whole lot of Germans and Austrians and French and not very many Syrians or Syrian accented Arabic in those videos. Got it. Mm-hmm. And the final question on this round down here. I'd like to ask a question. Going back to the... To the um, thank you. Thank you very much. To, to the, I thought, very, very revealing framework of the, the five drivers of, of the, the norm of sectarianism. Now, if, in a sense, this is the opposite polarity of the local constituencies I'm addressing because if, if we look at that, yeah, that, that's the one. The rise of Iran, presumably we're talking about perhaps the Shah regime and everything subsequent to that. Um, the, 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 the Sunni monarchies of the Arab Gulf, um, everything in, Ira- in Iraq since 2003. Now, in, every, in, in all those cases, we're talking presumably at least partly about the key role of Western intervention. In, in triggering these, these sectarian developments and these sectarian norms. And what I would like to ask you is, to what extent does that dimension, I mean, I'm, I'm even tempted to use it, that, the I-word, imperialism, I mean, to what, to what extent does that complicate your, your conception of, the, of, of sovereignty and the norm of sovereignty? Ah, it's it's the yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, five questions. Yeah. There you go. Uh, right. Causality. First. Causality. Causality. I, I don't. I, I, I don't disagree, Toby. I mean, I, I, I think it, it's, it, it's clear, and I, I, I tried to suggest that one of the critical uh, drivers. I, I think I defined it as an incubator of of uh, this shift was, in fact, the collapse of of existing state orders and and. The, the the declining uh, almost uh, missing capacity of existing central states to command um, to command all of the territory they nominally uh, they nominally control there, there there's there's no question um, that there is an institutional dimension to this as well I, I I do tend to to shy away from this notion of these spaces as ungoverned. Uh, I think they're they're governed. I think they're governed in ways that are often quite at odds with what we tend to think of as governance. Um, but but there's nothing contradictory between that notion and and the idea that yes, uh, and in many ways uh, there's also been a bit of of an accusation against the Assad regime in this regard as well, in the sense that 
very early in the uprising, it withdrew uh, regime units from the east, uh, I think, uh, in ways that created space within which some of these non-state militant groups could, could arise. So really not at all at, at odds with that, with that idea. Um, in, in terms of, of the, the role of the opposition, I actually would, would disagree a little bit with the way you parsed out some of those, those political um, allegiances or, or, or preferences. I, I think the, the concern of George Sabra and a number of the other leaders of the Syrian coalition at the time the Syrian National Council has been to differentiate between groups that were principally identified as Syrian and as national in their aspirations, even if they had uh, a, a fairly radical um, sectarian identity and agenda, and that would include Jebat al-Nusra, and those that are seen as principally foreign. And uh, you will recall perhaps that at the moment when the United States was considering designating Jabhat al-Nusra as a terrorist organization, which it eventually did, that bumped up against significant resistance, pushback, from the Syrian National Council, which basically said, you know, we are in the midst of an existential struggle. These are fighters who are effective on the battlefield. This is no time for us to be making additional enemies. And so there was an effort to persuade the U.S. government not to designate Jabhat al-Nusra as a terrorist group. I don't think this implies that the coalition has been supportive of a process of radicalization or of a process of sectarian polarization. In fact, just the opposite. I think the argument was that to the extent these groups are criminalized and marginalized, we increase the odds that they will um, play a, a more destructive role in the conflict and that if we were to preserve our links to them and continue to treat them as one group among many within this fragmented constellation of armed groups, we, actually, we would in fact have more influence and would be able to contain some of the impulses that we find most troubling. That's not the way things unfolded. But I don't think that that implies necessarily that, um, that, uh, that there was support within um, the, either the Syrian National Council initially or then the Syrian coalition for these um, processes of, of sectarian polarization and, and, and extremism. I, I don't think that's the case. In terms of, of, of Rajawa, which uh, some of you may not know is the name that, that Kurdish forces which liberated Kobane have given to the aspirational Kurdish entity that they believe is uh, on the verge of taking shape in the, air, in the territories that they have liberated uh, from ISIS in northern Syria. There is, uh, and that's a very complicated question in, in, in and of its own right in the sense that it seems as if some Turkish officials, at least, um, have spoken about uh, about Rojava in ways that are a little bit more welcoming and responsive than one might have anticipated. Um, but at the same time, I think even Kurdish actors, Peshmerga, PYD, others, uh, recognize that this is an enormously aspirational um, uh, entity. 
and that whatever they think their victory in Kobani entitles them to in terms of acting on their preference for a greater degree of autonomy, if not independence, that that remains uh, a fairly remote goal. But the term is gaining currency. It's becoming more widely used. Uh, it could well become the basis for a political platform around which some disparate Kurdish groups could, could organize. And I'm quite sure that we haven't heard the end of it, even though I think we're still quite some time from, from, um, it, from the point at which it becomes a significant factor in the balance of power uh, in, in northern Syria. Um, local constituencies of ISIS, there are, there are some, and, and I think we have to recognize that. Uh, there are Syrians and Iraqis who viewed ISIS initially at least as preferable to the authorities they had lived under previously. There are reports of businessmen moving into Raqqa after ISIS took control because they felt ISIS governed Raqqa more fairly with respect to economic commerce. Um, certainly there are Sunni tribes in Iraq which felt so profoundly alienated from the government that they were prepared at least initially to associate with ISIS. Uh, we've seen videos of the extent to which ISIS's efforts to build local constituencies in, in Syria <clears throat> have produced what can be described as at least limited bases of support. <clears throat> but we've also seen in the last few months how fragile those local constituencies or, or the support of those local constituencies has been. Uh, and the, the general sense at the moment seems to be that uh, local communities are withdrawing their support from ISIS. Uh, it, its ability to govern is constrained partly by declining resources, partly by the increasing threat it faces from coalition forces. Uh, its behavior uh, is increasingly um, seen in critical terms by communities who reside under ISIS's authority. We've just in the last month or so seen a fairly serious round of assassinations conducted by ISIS figures of members who were felt to be insufficiently loyal in one form or another. Uh, Mosul's uh, circumstances are widely believed to be quite dire. And so just in terms of performance, uh, whether it's due to the uh, effect of, of coalition airstrikes or not, I think is eroding whatever local support or some of the local support that ISIS enjoyed during its early, earliest phases of, of control. And, and frankly, I wouldn't be surprised to see that trend deepen and accelerate. Um, the key role of the West is, is this, is the sort of the, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it, it, the, the constitution of Iraq was in many ways a product of the coalition provisional authority. It's been a disaster. And, and I, I, I think to, to imagine that, that the U.S. is not complicit in creating the conditions in which some of these trends developed would be a significant uh, mistake. Uh, w whether you want to fashion it as old-fashioned imperialism or some newer form, um, but but there is absolutely no question that that uh, to the extent the U.S. invasion of Iraq and the political uh, order it um, 
it shaped and then uh, in, in to some extent imposed on Iraq is complicit in these trends? No, there's no question. There's no question. All right, one final round of questions. Uh, yeah, we'll start with you, sir, at the back, and then we'll come to you and then to you. Uh, thank you very much. Um, my uh, question goes back to uh, where you finished off about accommodation. Um, now, as you said with the statistics, I mean, it looks evenly split in Syria. So my question is, in the absence of any kind of winner's peace or anything like that, who does the accommodating? Um, also, perhaps it's been touched on before, but how would you accommodate, particularly the fact that uh, ISIS is classed as a, as a terrorist organization? Um, how would you practically go about that? And thirdly, would accommodation... Um, I mean, I don't know too much about the, the Middle East or, or Syria itself, but would accommodation itself lead to more sectarianism with regards to the fact of the opportunity which arises from accommodation leading to fluidity of sectarianism and further violence and further conflict? I thought when you were talking about accommodation, you were talking about institutional political settlement accommodation. But given what you just said about the Iraqi constitution, you might not, but hold that. Yeah. Yeah. I wondered if I could ask you to say a bit more about the role of Jordan. Um, your, I wondered if I could ask about, uh, a bit more about Jordan. Your uh, future projection map seemed to show it exactly as is, and maybe that's because uh, most people feel it's uh, so completely uh, propped up by, by the West that the borders are resistant. But um, I, I wondered your opinion on whether the, it is resistant to both the external and the internal factors. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the lady ahead of you has already asked my question on Jordan, so I'll go straight to my second one. Um, given the coalition in Iraq, do you see that setting a precedent for the Gulf countries in the next few decades, perhaps actually using their militaries in regional conflicts? as opposed to just hoarding all the weaponry. Thanks. And one final question. Yeah, you with the beard there. I may, may ask you to answer that. I may ask you to answer the Gulf military's question. Thank you. Especially for noticing the beard as well. Um, Very impressive. Thank you. <laughs> the question's gone now. Um, just if you could say a little bit more about um, the potential sort of sustainability of the Assad regime. So you talk about 35% um, of the land mass, 65% of the population. He seemed incredibly calm, cool, and confident on TV. I watched the whole interview and mm. was so surprised to see how relaxed he presented himself. More relaxed than I think than in, in the entirety of the last four years. And, um, you know, how much longer can he, can he continue? Mm -hmm. There you go. Four questions. Okay. Um, the last four, we text you very heavily. No, no, no. I, you uh, earned your dinner. <laughs> um, accommodation. Who, who, who accommodates? How, how do we accommodate? Um, I, I'm, I, I may, I may have lost some of the thread of that original question, but you know, I, I, I have have a sense that that accommodation can take a variety of different forms. For example, even today within the territory in Syria controlled by the Assad regime, there continues to be a majority Sunni population. And if the Assad regime imagines restoring some measure of stable governance, 
it is going to have to find a way to respond to the concerns and and priorities of of a Sunni community that lives within the boundaries uh, of a regime which is widely seen as having waged war against a Sunni majority population. What form might that take? How might the regime reach out to do that? Would it happen through the organization of social policy? Would it happen through new strategies for the distribution of, of, of public resources? I, I think we can imagine all kinds of different ways in which that might happen. It could include uh, the establishment of new kinds of political institutions, including bodies which might officially represent elements of uh, sectarian communities um, and empowering them in some respect to make demands on the regime. It could include, uh, as we saw, uh, frankly, in the early phases of the Bashar al-Assad period, efforts to broaden space for Sunnis to engage publicly in forms of religious expression. Religious bookstores expanded, mosque construction increased, efforts of some uh, religious civil society groups um, like the Kubaisiyat and others, the religious instructional groups, uh, were tolerated uh, by the Bashar regime during the uh, decade of the 2000s. And, and when I talk about accommodation, I'm talking about this full range of possible ways in which um, uh, actors who have very, uh, who, who principally identify in sectarian terms, reach understandings with governing authorities in which they feel that they have the space they need and the resources they need in order to respond to some of their concerns and preferences. I mean, there's any number of ways in which these accommodations could take shape. I, I don't expect, for instance, in Syria that we would see them take the form of authorization to form religiously based political parties. For I, I don't see that. But I can imagine a, a wide range of other, of other accommodations that, that could be possible. Would, would the process of shaping these accommodations lead to more conflict? I, I suspect that's very likely. And I suspect that they will lead to conflict not only between authorities and contenders, but among contenders themselves because this is a process in which there is going to be very tough bargaining about the terms under which sectarian communities that have been um, under, under, under quite extraordinary assault from central authorities uh, are going to, at some point, acknowledge that they will need to establish a modus vivendi for working with these, these authorities, and that is inevitably going to be a very conflictual process. Will there be those within these regimes which reject accommodation? Of course. Hardliners on both sides. So this process could well become an important trend within uh, local, state-level, regional conflicts uh, over the coming period. And, and the process of reaching a broader settlement of the current conflicts, I think we have to recognize as one that, that will itself involve a certain element of, of violence and, and, and confrontation. Um, Jordan, um, you know, I, I, I tried to make the case that I think that even though Jordan is under extraordinary strain as a result of the Syrian conflict, 
uh, financially um, in many other respects that you know, in, in, in keeping with Charles Tilley's old maxim that you know war makes the state and the state makes war, I, I think that one of the most significant consequences of regional conflict that we've seen in Jordan is the increasing consolidation and, and growing capacity of some Jordanian state institutions, especially those involved in, um, in, in the security of, of, of the state. But, but we may see now that Jordanians in general have responded to the murder of, of this young pilot, very brutal murder the other day, uh, a moment of growing national cohesion. I, I suspect it's it's a bit transient. I, I wouldn't imagine it's going to be permanent. But for at least the time being, it 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 does I, I reinforce this sense of of regional conflict as demanding a level of cohesion among Jordanians that I think they were probably less inclined to accept uh, previously. So I, I, I really do think we, we can't look at these conflicts as creating a uniform set of effects across states. I think they vary a great deal. And, and one of the real challenges for us is to unpack these differences. And so I do distinguish a bit between Jordan and some of the other cases. But I do want to point out these aren't my maps. I didn't, they're not mine. I just show them. Um, are Gulf states going to become significant military actors uh, in in the region over the next decade or so? I doubt it. I, I, I seriously doubt it. First of all, there are very different, and, and I, I, I suggested that, that Toby may be better equipped to answer that question than I am. We see very different patterns of engagement in military operations by Gulf states as it is. Uh, Kuwait is not active at the moment. The Saudis are not active at, at the moment. In terms of, of airstrikes, we have the Emiratis, the Qataris, the Jordanians. The Bahrainis have been, have been active, whether because the U.S. Fifth Fleet is based there or not, I don't know. But, but there, there is wide variation in the extent to which Gulf governments use their militaries as an instrument of power, of diplomacy uh, in regional conflicts. I, I would certainly expect that to continue. The sustainability of the Assad regime. Um, I, I suspect that uh, the Assad regime uh, has pretty good prospects. I, I can imagine a number of, of conditions that would uh, significantly weaken its prospects, including the withdrawal of support from its principal patrons, Russia and Iran. Uh, it, it seems as if there is growing Russian fatigue with the burden of support for the Assad regime. Uh, that is less evident in the Iranian case. Um, but uh, it certainly does not seem that there is any imminent threat of the military defeat of the Assad regime. Uh, the territory it controls combined with its, um, its regional and international support do provide it with fairly robust resource base. Uh, robust may be an exaggeration, but, but a resource base that permits it to continue to, um, to support at reduced levels many of the social programs that, that those living under the regime continue to rely on. There is just a debate recently uh, 
following a reduction in bread subsidies in regime-held areas of Syria, about the need to counter that by increasing public sector salaries. I don't think we would have seen that debate if the regime felt so profoundly strapped that it didn't think <coughs> it could compensate for increasing commodity prices by increasing salaries. So, you know, on a number, and I think from, from the perspective of many who watch the regime, it continues to exhibit a level of cohesion among its, its inner circle, certainly. That suggests that the war has not yet produced the kind of internal cleavages that might also threaten the sustainability of the regime. So, for a variety of reasons, uh, I, I suspect that probably the most prudent prediction to make in, in the near to midterm, but not beyond that, is that the Assad regime is going to be with us. Well, thank you. Uh, as I said, this is the first of three events that Professor Heidemann has, has, has uh, kind enough to agree to participate in, and um, I think he's created a rod for his own back, because I thought today's uh, presentation was superb. It was both incredibly well-organized but packed full of insights. So it, uh, thank, thank you. you very much. <laughs>